All right, let us go ahead and get started this evening. We're going to do the second class of the book, uh, chapter two of this uh, book that we've been delving into. And uh, obviously, before we begin, it's time to spend a little time in prayer because uh, we have a lot of information to cover tonight. Uh, chapter two it has to do with uh, is, is there a God? Who is this God? And how do we identify him? And then what is the other uh, possibility of uh, the ultimate cause of all things? So before we begin, let's take this time for prayer and prepare ourselves to study the Word of God. Let us pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you again for your blessings, your tests, your opportunities. Thank you once again for your amazing Word. Thank you that we have a reasonable faith, that we we can reasonably uh, go from one point to another knowing that you're behind it all. And so, Father, tonight as we look into your word, I pray that we would have a period of concentration. We'd be able to understand and learn and retain what we have learned so that we might be better witnesses in the world. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. All right, <clears throat> chapter two, and this is a quick review of what we did uh, last week. And if you take this chart that we've got, be sure that uh, uh, you spend time with this chart. That's one of the best pieces of advice that I can give because this, uh, this little chart is going to uh, give us a flow of thought. It is how do we get from point A to point B? How do we get there reasonably? How do we get there logically? And what do we have? What kind of puzzle has the Lord put together for us to, to put together? Oftentimes we want to jump, jump to the end and have peace in the midst of all this turmoil. And, and a lot of people want peace. And they don't believe the Bible's the inspired word of God. So they're never going to find the peace that they so desperately seek. So where do we start? What's the starting point? And how do we go through it? Now, we'll go through this um, um, frequently as we go through this class to try and keep our heads together as to what is uh, what's what, where we are within the chart, because this is a very simple statement of, of either ors in a lot of in a lot of ways. It's either this or it's this. And so, um, as a result, we need to uh, view it that way. Now, going with each of these statements, what we're going to find is that the, uh, we're going to have a lot more information to go with every one of these. But part of what happens to us is Satan's a master of distraction, and he gets us so confused and inundated with so much information we can't figure out what's important. You might remember from last week that, that when you start surveying uh, churches, uh, most people don't know what they believe. 90% of the people in churches today don't know what they believe. And the 10% that do, 90% of them don't know why they believe it. And so if they do know why they believe it, they don't know what's important. And if they know what's important, they're not able to share it with their neighbor to defend the faith, and we need to be able to do all of those things. So where do we start? First of all, there are only two possibilities if you go back to the ultimate cause of all things. It either has to be God or matter. That's what has to be the determining factor. And so if we start with God, then it would make, uh, uh, it would make sense that he revealed himself. Now we know that he did, but if we're just starting back with the ultimate cause of all things, then we have uh, then we have the issue of what someone or something's always been here. Now we're going to look at some of the proofs of the existence of God in a nutshell tonight because any one of them by themselves is proof that God exists. But when you put them all together, it's quite a package that, that, that God does exist. Now, if he made all things, which we believe he did, wouldn't he reveal himself to his creation? It makes sense. So if he did, and you start thinking through the big questions of life, it'd be reasonable to ask, what is it? So <clears throat> if you choose to not believe that God was the, the primary cause of all things, but rather matter, that we came out of a primeval ooze, or did we were 
descended from a rock or some other thing like that then all we've got is our own observation and part of the problem with humanity over the course of the last six thousand years at least is that their their observation has been limited to the geographical area in which they find themselves most of mankind did not grow up with the internet and able to zoom in from google earth to take a look at at different parts of the globe and the flora and fauna and the the geography and the hurricanes and all that they didn't know anything about it so their observation was very limited and that would lead to a confusion what they would know they wouldn't know how to sort out where did this all come from they couldn't figure out how to sort it out so the result is confusion <clears throat> now if you believe that God revealed himself that's where we get inspiration now if God is God couldn't he reveal himself perfectly now that's what he says about himself and his word has been tested throughout all of history but inspiration you would expect him to inspire a work that would reveal himself so that should give us confidence if you open up the Bible you ought to have some confidence that he indeed is has revealed himself and revealed himself through this through his word in the course of our study <clears throat> We will look at canonicity. How did the Bible come together? What were the tests that were employed in order to uh, put a book in the canon of Scripture? How did it get viewed as such? What is the backup information? How accurate is the text? These are things we're going to look at in the course of our study. So if it's all inspired, you can expect it to be true, and we look at it with confidence. But if you believe that matter started all things and we're only here by accident, then this observation just leads to what is your perception of what you're seeing. What, how do you view a particular uh, issue or item like the Grand Canyon? How do you view it? All you've got your perception of it which is very self-centered and very selfish. Now if it's your perception it's always going to be limited and you're always going to know it and there's always going to be doubt that's going to be a part of your thinking that's part of thinking that the world goes through because see this this top line on this chart is about is about the godly line to get to where we want to go which is having the hope in this life with peace of soul and the next line down under that is about the worldly line living according to the world and all through the scripture we're exhorted keep our mind fixed on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand we're always called to have a higher view of life than simply what we're able to see now with inspiration if we believe the Bible's inspired we should read it wanting to find the author's will okay we're not trying to read our will into it that's self-will and that is a worldly viewpoint. So we read the Bible wanting to know what the Almighty has to say to us. And see, that's to read it with humility. You don't have to read very far in Christian literature or other literature to find out that humility is a virtue and arrogance is not. And yet the world would have you look at things in order to find what you want to find and so that is reading self-will in. What do I want to see rather than what is the author trying to tell me? If self-will is the, is the motivation, then the result is arrogance. That's, that's just the way it works. Now once we take the author's will, <coughs> we, can, we can say, well, hey, we can find truth. See, the world has attacked truth. Hasn't the world attacked every one of those things on this God line? Well, there's no God, so why has he revealed himself? Oh, the Bible. Well, it can't be inspired because it's got too many mistakes in it. That's people speaking arrogant words that they don't know what they're talking about. And then the authors, well, well, well if, if I'm a little God, why can't I read it the way I want to read it and read my viewpoint into it? But see, if there is a God and he's revealed himself, and he's inspired a revelation of himself in the canon, and we read the Bible looking for his will for my life, then we can say we can find truth. Truth is very reasonable, and it does exist. The result of that is a assurance. 
these things are written to you believe in the name of the lord jesus christ that you may know you have eternal life well how can you know if you don't believe that god started it all he revealed himself he revealed himself accurately and i'm reading that and that's what he's telling me so i know that's a truth that's a truth that he has offered to me and that <clears throat> with that see that that's the kind of thinking that that changes us and changes the world if we go the other way all we end up with is deception because the old devil is really good at taking things that we look at and twisting them around to our own selfish ends but the deception this charts found at the end of chapter one in your book and that's why i held this other one up uh, that you get a hopefully can read it a little bit better but you know, if you're deceived, I don't know any happy people that are deceived. They know something's wrong, and as a result, they, they are full of anger. Is the world full of anger now? If, if you notice that on the news or anything? Fear, they're afraid, well, what I do know scares me to death, type of attitude, and guilt. They don't know why they have a sense of guilt, but they know that they're not as smart as they think they are or profess to be. But there is a, a, an issue there. So that's the way the world thinks. Now, if we keep moving down this, this chart line and you believe that you can find truth and truth is found in the Word of God and the Word of God is revealed and it is perfectly revealed, you can change your life. Because inside of all of us is a sin nature, and we all need our life changed. But see, we're always changing, but the question is, are we changing for the better or for the worse? And we're going we're to look and see uh, the will of God and how the will of God functions with, within our life. A changed life, you're going to know it because it's going to be a life of service. I was talking with my uh, brother uh, yesterday or day before. I lose track of the time. And... <clears throat> He was talking about, he lives in California, and he said that it was interesting how so many of the younger people are so self-centered. It absolutely drives him nuts. He said, we were taught about sacrificial service for the benefit of others. That's what our parents lived. That's what they bottled for us. That's what we saw. And he said, that's just the way we grew up, and that's the way we thought. He said, that's not the way other people think now. And I said, that's just exactly right. It's not the way people think. I actually quoted 2 Timothy 3 to him. I said, in the last days, it says difficult times will come. Men will be lovers of self. And I said, the top of that list is, is uh, narcissism. That's exactly what it is. The changed life is what we should want that is changed for the better. But the opposite side of the thing, if you're living in the worldly side, you're going to try to change the world. You're going to try to fix all the problems in this world. You're going to try to change it. But see, to change the world, you have to change yourself first. See, that's the way it works. A lot of people start changing themselves for the better to honor Christ. The world changes. That's what happens. But otherwise, we're in a quest to change the world. And <clears throat> the result of that's going to be frustration because the world's not going to cooperate. Have you ever noticed that in your own life? The world just doesn't cooperate with your plans no matter how great your plans might be. Um, a changed life is going to lead to a transformed life. We read that in Romans 12. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So you can determine what the will of God is. You'll know it because it's good and it's acceptable and it's perfect. And yet, you know what the transformed life is? You're going to love God when you don't know why, when you don't understand Him, and you're going to love other people even when they're unlovable. You're going to become Christ-like. That's what a transformed life is, is about. That's what it looks like. And that changing the world, though, see, that gets conformed to the world. You want to change the world, you're going to have to play the world's games. You're going to have to play the world's politics. You're going to have to pursue the fame, fortune, power, and pleasure so you can be a dominant creature on the planet. And the result of being conformed to the world is discontent as you're never going to be happy. 
It's just a temporary happiness that sets in for a little while and then it flies away and then you establish new goals to try and change the world a little bit more and end up conform to the way the world thinks. Now, the transformation brings in our life hope. Because if your life has changed, you'll know it. When John wrote that, these things are written to you, believe in the name of, of Jesus Christ, that, that you may know you have eternal life. He had five chapters in front of him that he was talking about, and he was talking about you're going to love your brother, not hate your brother. You're going to know that you love because God first loved you. He starts teaching us about how we're going to know certain things. And then, you know, if you have a hope, which is faith about the future, that's what it is, confident expectation, then you can have peace because the world's in chaos. And according to the scripture, it's just going to get worse. So how can you have peace in the middle of all the chaos? This is how you get there. The other option, though, is, is to be involved in worldly pursuits of fame, fortune, power, and pleasure. You're trying to play all the games with all the politicians and everybody else. Fame, fortune, power, and pleasure. And <clears throat> results desperation. Because it's never going to provide the happiness. It's never going to provide the hope. Never going to provide the peace. It lacks the ability or power. Now that's the quick review of where we <clears throat> where we started uh, last week. Now chapter 2 that we're entering into uh, tonight is about evidence of a creator. The evidence of a creator. We're going to look in chapter 2 and you can follow this along in that, in that chapter about arguments for the existence of God. Arguments for the existence of God. We're going to look at the design hypothesis. Take that out of one of the five arguments for the existence of God. Look at it a little bit deeper. We're going to ask who is this creator. And we're going to dare to ask the question, is it Elohim? And we know according to the Bible or Allah, which one is the uh, creator of the universe. And then we're going to look at some of the challenges of the Elohim of the Bible, the one we know. And, uh, again, evolution. Now, we're not going to go verse by verse throughout this chapter. The purpose of this, this class is to give us an overview and then use the book as a textbook so you can go in and find out more information. There's going to be one of the things we hit is the evidence from physics. And in the evidence from physics, you're going to have some great big numbers in there like 1 minus 10 to the 48th power, something like that. It's got a whole bunch of zeros all over it. And what it's telling us is some very important things about the way the universe works. There are certain things that are called constants, and I'll try not to jump ahead too much, but if those things stop being constant, we cease to exist. They are held in such a delicate equilibrium that we as, as humans have just found out and where, where did God put us in here in, in the middle of nowhere in this thing called space? Why did he put us here? Why didn't he put us somewhere else? Well, what are the arguments for the existence of God? The first one we're going to look at is called the cosmological <coughs> argument. And it is a cause-effect argument. Now, if we look at any one of these, as mentioned, they're, they're all good arguments for the existence of God, proofs of the existence of God. Because when you think back as far as you can possibly think someone or something has always got to be here, because where there is an effect, there's a cause. That's just, they, they call it one of the laws of thermodynamics. Where there is an effect, there's a cause. You are the effect of your parents getting together. So that's part of how you came about and so where do you go back to the ultimate parent of all parents or the ultimate cause of all things? When you say look out and see the heavens that declare the glory of God in, in the heavenlies, when you look out and see them, you well, how did they get here? Oh, well, you could almost understand if you looked out there and there was no structure to the stars. But guess what? <laughs> there is a structure to the stars. And if you're a shepherd standing out in the field trying to keep those unruly sheep in the pen, 
and you're going to spend a lot of nights on your back looking up at the stars and you're going to notice that hey this thing's moving and it's moving around one central location they call a polar star and it keeps coming back and why is that star over here in august and over here in april and you start <laughs> looking at things going this is really strange there's an order and a design even to the universe that just doesn't seem like it would come out of ultimate chaos which is that if that's where you want to start you have to explain that but it's reasonable to say someone was the ultimate cause and this someone you can you can know a lot about him he was omnipotent okay we know from the bible a lot about him but i mean if from natural revelation you find yourself with not knowing anything else you look up at the heavens and you go there's a creator this just didn't happen there is a cause of all things and you start reasoning from that particular point of argument the next one is called the ontological <clears throat> and again logical is a word that means uh, of a word logic logos is the greek word that comes out of there ikal you tack that on a Greek word, you get other pertaining to a word. And ontos is a word that means perfect. So ontological is the, this was done by, uh, uh, I believe, Anselm. It's the innate realization in man of an absolutely perfect and necessary being. It's something that we inherently know is what the argument is. That we know that there is somebody that is necessary or we wouldn't be here that keeps everything put together but it's also a concept of perfection because inside every one of us we realize our imperfection we know that we make mistakes we know sometimes we give our word and don't keep it we know that sometimes the truth gets twisted around just a little bit we know that there are things that go haywire within each and every one of us and why would we know they're not right if there was no concept of perfection. So there is a concept of perfection out there. One of the arguments came about in the third, fourth century AD called the ontological. Then we have anthropological, which reasons from life to life. Uh, we've seen that living things are too improbably and too beautifully designed to have come into existence by chance. For life to just happen, how did life just happen? Suddenly this little primeval ooze, the primeval soup, you can buy a can of that at Walmart if you look properly, and this primeval soup, it just out of that came a little gas bubble or something, and somehow this gas bubble had just the right spark to become alive, and it, uh, uh, Oh, a gas bubble became alive, and gas, gas expands to all available space, which if you know anything about chemistry and physics, the gas law is, is saying, well, if there was a gas bubble that came out, first thing it's going to do is go, <laughs> so how did the gas bubble go, <laughs> and come together, <laughs> and eventually form a thinking creature? That makes no sense whatsoever. So the design that we find in human beings makes it improbable that uh, it came into existence by chance. Then we have what's called the teleological. Logical is a word about. Teleos is a word that refers to the end of various things. And this reasons from the design to the designer. Now we're going to look just a second at the design hypothesis. And this is the, the argument of, of it's, it's kind of cause effect. Because it looks at the end result and says there has to be an intelligent being uh, by whom all natural things are directed toward their end. There has to be a designer. Where, where you find a design, you have to have a designer. So how did, how did chaos suddenly bring about a design? And you, you try to ask some people that, and they go, well, it doesn't matter how it happened. It just did. And then they offer you as proof. Well, that's not inquiring minds should want to know a little bit more than uh, than that the teleological and then we have the moral 
the moral law. It's the innate moral law to the lawgiver. And it basically is an argument that says a moral being had to be made or taught by another. See, again, it goes to ultimate cause. And here we are to have some concept of morality and right and wrong. Those type issues, well, how do you know they're right and wrong? There needs to be a teaching. What did God first teach to Adam? See all these trees? Eat from all of those. That's literally what he said. You see that tree? Don't eat it. Don't eat from it at all. Because the day you do, dying, you're going to die. He was taught by another one who established the standards. So we have these five basic arguments for the existence of God, the cosmological. Anything comes into existence has a cause. We have the ontological, the innate realization in man of an absolutely perfect and necessary being. We have the anthropological, and uh, we've seen that living things are too improbably and too beautifully designed to have come into existence by chance. We have the teleological, <clears throat> which is there's an intelligent designer behind all things. We wouldn't have a design if we didn't have a designer. And the moral, which is there's an innate moral law that is given uh, to a lawgiver. And this, uh, for us to have a law, we have to uh, be taught by somebody else. Now, <clears throat> the design hypothesis comes out of the teleological argument, design to designer. And we're going to look at it a little bit more because it's come to prominence in recent years. <clears throat> they call it intelligent design, call it by a number of things. But it's, it's really just, it should be pretty simple reasoning to us. Because when you start looking at design, the evidence of cosmology comes, to, uh, uh, comes into uh, play. Because cosmos means what? The world. Logi, a word about. Cosmo cosmology. And the universe had a beginning. I find that interesting that even the atheistic scientists are now saying that the universe had a beginning. So, <clears throat> if it's had a beginning, it's not eternally existed. So, if it's not eternally existed, then how did it bring into existence life, morality, consciousness? How did it do that? It doesn't make any sense. When the universe had a beginning, it indicates that there is a cause outside of it that brought it into existence. <clears throat> it's amazing how much people can argue about stuff when if they just looked at the Bible... They got the answer right there in the first verse of the, of the book. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. Barashit, Barai, Elohim, Hashemayim, Wahaaretz. What a beautiful picture from the Hebrew. It had a beginning, and Elohim created the heavens and the earth. So it's <clears throat> not always eternally existent. And again, this is the stuff that you need to try and read at home. If you can read all this this fast, then you can read faster than I can and understand it. You have the evidence of physics that comes into play as well. And there's over 30 precise physical or cosmological parameters to produce a universe that would sustain life. How do you get a universe even to sustain life? There are various constants that are... Uh, laws of physics, if you will. I always love laws of physics because spiritual laws uh, trump the uh, laws of physics. When when God gets ready to do something, he he's not he made them. He's not bound by them, so he can easily change them. But what he did was establish them for us to take a look and go. You know, if the if if this gravitational constant. Uh, was off by 5%, we wouldn't exist. No life could exist in, in the universe. And they come to realize that uh, pretty readily. We are, we are living on a planet that is so fine-tuned that Abraham couldn't have realized it. Uh, Noah couldn't have realized it. 
Adam couldn't have realized it. But God has let us find out a lot of things that are, is true scientific discovery. Figure those things out, and we are in such a unique position in the universe for on a planet to sustain life. This is amazing. I, you know, here they are run, running around with drones out on Mars right now. While it's fascinating to think about, I don't think they're going to find Martians. <clears throat> I really don't. I used to think that one time. I got in an argument with my mom, <clears throat> which you know how arguing with moms goes, usually not very well. And I said, well, just a law of averages, there's going to be more life in the universe. You ever heard that one before? Just the law of averages, there'll be more life out here in the universe and all that. And I, I, I said, why would you think there wouldn't be? And she said, in the beginning, God created the, what? The heavens and the earth. And the earth was special. So, eventually I came to realize, I believe that's exactly right. God had a special purpose for this little ball of nothing roaming around out here in space. And so here we are, the heavens and the earth. Then we have the evidence of astronomy. <clears throat> the earth is intricately positioned geologically and chemically in the universe to sustain life. We start looking at things, you know, this uh, oxygen-nitrogen ratio that we find in, in uh, our uh, ecological system. Uh, I forget the exact numbers, but we've got like 14% oxygen and 86% not. That's probably the wrong numbers, but it's a... Uh, uh, <clears throat> uh, still, what happens if the percentage of oxygen changes by 10%? We burn everything, everything burns up, is what happens. There's so many fine-tuned laws of physics and, and uh, laws of the, of the planet here that God has set in place. And we often just don't realize it. We don't realize how finely tuned this whole uh, thing we called Earth is. Then there's the evidence of biological information. And there's some what they call irreducibly complex molecular machines. <clears throat> Little gadgets on a microscopic level that have three parts to them. <clears throat> and the three parts all have to exist together simultaneously or this little thing dies. Now how did those three things come together by accident to form these little molecular machines or cellular, uh, below the cellular level of, um, of life? They're irreducibly complex. Yet, chaos theory would say it doesn't matter what the odds are, they just happened. Well, the evidence of biological information, the evidence of biochemistry, because in, in, you have a, about 100 trillion cells in your body. Now, that's approaching the national debt, isn't it? And inside each one of those little cells, <clears throat> Or six feet of DNA. And your DNA is what gets passed on to uh, your next generation. Your DNA is what determines if your eyes are blue or green or orange or whatever color you, you, you make them. Those little things in there, those building blocks of life, the combinations that they come with, just look at biochemistry. How did those, how did those happen? I did some ran some numbers out once a long time ago and and um, I really will mess them up if I don't. I'm, I'm not going that down that road right now. But the evidence of biochemistry that for, for two DNA strands to come together, the odds against it happening by chance are off the charts. They're off the charts. So there had to be a design to put those things together in a way that they would function at all. And then there is the evidence of <clears throat> consciousness. I think, therefore, I am. Uh, consciousness is something science can't explain. 
neuroscience has done brain surgery and they can do brain surgery they stimulate certain parts of the brain and they mapped out parts of the brain in there and they know well this part controls your hands and this part controls your feet and your eyes and they map that all out and yet brain surgery is usually done with the person awake and what they can't do or identify or quantify is consciousness because they can trigger someone's arm to raise up and the person will tell them you did that I didn't now that's got to be quite confusing to someone that you can't put consciousness in a bottle I think Jim Croce tried to put time in a bottle that didn't work either but if you try to put consciousness in a bottle there's no good scientific explanation uh, <clears throat> I know they're trying to explain it away and I also know they're very good at theories and I also know that a theory is still a theory <laughs> until you really get proof that goes along with it uh, who is this creator we would ask is there one God or is there many gods hmm. depends on who you ask uh, now, the universe, that's small, isn't it? The universe is fine-tuned for human existence. How did it come into play? Now, we know the Creator is one, but which one? Elohim or Allah? Because both lay claim to it. Islam claims that Allah is the Creator the Jews and Christians claim that Elohim is the creator. The polytheists claim that there were many gods, but it's interesting, even in polytheism, they all have a creator god. They have a chief god. The god of the Hindus is Shiva. So they have chief gods that run the show, and they have a bunch of little gods. It kind of makes sense that if the way people think you start with many God and with one God and if that one God has multiple attributes then what people tend to do is break those multiple attributes into different gods and I've talked to some Hindus about it, I've talked to some Buddhists about it, talked to Indian people about it that that live in that society and they said that looks exactly what, like what they have done it's interesting they've got um, one of the, the Hindu gods is, uh, is, is the many-breasted one. It's a god with, with many breasts. And when you look at El Shaddai, a lot of the old puritanical translators don't even want to go down that, that road, but, but um, it, El means omnipotent god. That's his title, omnipotent god. Shaddai means the many-breasted one. The omnipotent God of many breasts. What's he talking about? He's a God of blessings. And he has the omnipotence to distribute blessings however he wants to do it. El Shaddai is what, that's what that, but the, the, the King James like God Almighty. So when you see the translation God Almighty in your King James Bible, guess what you're looking at? Okay? He is the almighty, many-breasted one who can bless you every possible way that you can imagine. So what did the Hindus do? They made that a separate god, is what they did. They have, uh, of course, the god of war. We know there's a god who is righteous and just, and he will wage war with his enemies, and they turn them into many gods. That, that makes sense. Which one are we going to ask? Because neither Christianity nor Islam sees them as the same. Although both worship the creator of the universe. If you talk to a Muslim, he will tell you that Allah is not Elohim. And if you talk to a Jew, hopefully that has some knowledge, they'll tell you Elohim is not Allah. They are different. Why are they different? Because their characteristics are different. Okay. Now, how did we ever find out about this God named Allah? That was through Muhammad. Muhammad was the revealer of Allah. And you have a lot of information there. <clears throat> in the back of your book, you have an entire, uh, in the appendix, 
you have an entire discourse on islam what they believe what the different viewpoints are the different sects within islam you get you get something you can have a lot of time studying world religions and studying also cults there's a another appendix in the back that that talks about cults now mohammed was a revealer of law but mohammed although he's been treated as godlike he never claimed deity okay he never did footnote buddha never did either but his followers about 300 years later decided that he was worthy of godhood because he believed in many gods and that you could ascend to godhood through transmigration of souls and all those things that you could eventually become a god yourself but Muhammad never claimed deity. And Muhammad, interestingly enough, sinned in obvious ways. He had been known to lie. He'd been known to cheat. He, uh, if you start reading his background and his battle with demons and all that that he went through, it's, it's pretty easy to find that, that Muhammad was not a savior because Jesus never sinned. Is what the claim was, and nobody was able to truly convict him of sin, but Muhammad sinned in obvious ways, and he was the revealer of Allah. How do we know in part? Prophecies did not come true. Now, he claimed that he was a prophet like unto Moses, and that he followed the long line, and he was next in secession after Jesus. Okay, so he didn't totally discredit Jesus, but he said, Jesus was a prophet, but I came to take his place. So his prophecies, 600 years after Christ lived, supposedly took the place of Jesus the Messiah. And he gave prophecies that didn't come true. Now, how did we know that he gave a prophecy that didn't come true? How can you prove that to somebody? Because you're sitting here today. Because he prophesied that 500 years after his death, which was in the 600 somewhere, that the world would end. Well, that's already passed by 800 years. So, that should, why would I want to follow a false prophet? Makes no sense whatsoever. His prophecies did not come true. Elohim passes all the valid tests. Elohim passes the test of a God. Who is he? What has he done? Is he perfect? Can he uh, bring about miracles? Elohim passes all of the valid tests. Now, <clears throat> Elohim, like what? Elohim was revealed and confirmed by prophets. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. Who wrote that down? Moses. Was Moses a prophet? Yeah. How many prophets followed along after him? Well, we have 12 minor prophets. We have five major prophets, plus a whole lot of other prophets named with inside those prophets. And the prophets, the spirits of the prophets, are subject to the prophets. So if there was one that was false, <clears throat> if there was, then he would be revealed over the course of time. When you get to the New Testament, why did the early church have prophets? <coughs> well, they authenticated the Old Testament for one thing, and they had prophets in different locations to authenticate the writings of the New Testament that were just coming out. So prophets were back, important role that they played. So when, a, when Corinth got four letters sent to it from Paul, why do we only have two of them? Because the other two weren't inspired and weren't scripture. But what did, what did the prophets do? They got that and they said, you better hang on to this. We're going to hang on to it. We're going to copy it in scripture. And they were able to do that. And that's how the New Testament was put together. <coughs> <coughs> the God of Islam, and this is a very simple, quick, brief study, called Allah as a counterfeit. It was created by false prophet and therefore should not be worshipped. That's a conclusion. And again, more data you can find there to read in the book. <coughs> me.
Now, challenging the Elohim of the Bible, a lot of times people say, well, it's all the same God. Other people say, well, yeah, we're headed the same place, we're just taking different paths to get there. There's a lot of different uh, ways that Satan has tried to dis distort this. But <clears throat> not all world religions have the same creator. If all things evolve from matter, maybe many gods evolved to just being one god. Is that the way things work? Do things go from order to disorder? <clears throat> uh, that's a law of thermodynamics too, isn't it? Law of entropy. Uh, evidenced by your garage. You can put it together. It looks nice. All the floors are swept. And the next morning you got leaves that's blown in under the garage door. I mean, it will go from order to disorder even if you never go out there. That's what happens. That's How about going from one God to people believing in multiple gods. That makes sense. But to say that there was a whole lot of gods at the outset of things, and suddenly people evolved into just believing in one god, doesn't make any sense. And evolution itself is, uh, is going into multiple groups. Evolution itself believes that things change, multiply, divide, new species are made and all that. That's, that's the way that, that functions. But see, it goes from one to many. That's the way evolution normally thinks. Until they apply it to belief systems, which we call religion. Until they apply it to religion. And then they do just exactly the reverse. Some examples of evolutionary viewpoint, the thing we call manna or fetishism. <clears throat> this believes that a spiritual force resides in an object like an, like an idol and that the object is thought to have magical powers and it's often manifested, interestingly, in spiritual and sexual uh, expressions. It's like the little thing on, on your uh, mantle and suddenly you decide this little figurine that's up there has magical powers. Uh, <clears throat> that's kind of why I, I run away from stuff like Elf on a Shelf and and some of those other things that come along that just, you kind of go, eh, this has got the wrong overtones here that, that go with it. Uh, <clears throat> animism. And now we're making provision, trying to in our universities, that uh, it's okay to be one with the animals. You can be an animist and believe that you're in, in tune with the a cat or a dog or a hyena or whoever you want to be in, in tune with there and somehow your souls are intertwined with each other and, and that's just animism. Then uh, polytheism. That's where people believe that there are many gods. Uh, a lot of people believe that whether they practice it or not. But they believe there's a lot of, of, of um, gods worthy of worship. <clears throat> Henotheism is a person that believes there's a lot of gods but picks one to worship. And there's a lot of that in, in India. A lot of them worship the god of money. <clears throat> and so there's a whole, there's 250 million gods, and it's a handy system because if you don't like the one you're worshiping, if they're not paying off for you, you can change. <clears throat> Get rid of one, do another one. I've told you before about being in India one time, and we are staying in a hotel across from an idol temple <clears throat> and we heard these people yelling and they were and looked out the window and and they had it was like the uh, carnival where you had the little koopy dolls and you throw them baseballs at them only these were gods <laughs> and they're throwing coconuts at them <laughs> and i was thinking of course i asked the guy we were with so what what is that about? Well, that God didn't do well for them. <laughs> so, they have kind of like a duck pen alley out there, and they're just chunking these coconuts until they finally take this God out. And then I guess they, I don't know what they do, burn that one or go buy another one or something until they find one that, that works. So there's a whole lot of them, but you, they're just worshiping one. They feel like, you see, if they just worship one God, then they got a better chance of getting blessed in that area. 
than uh, if they're worshiping a whole lot of them. And then there's monotheism. And of course, evolution thinks that monotheism evolved from the belief in many gods. Again, that just doesn't seem uh, right. What's the option? Remember our chart? Someone or something. We've been looking at the, the God line. Now let's look at the matter line for just a second. And what is behind evolution? Because if you believe that, that matter has always existed. We look for different words to use besides matter, but it's something that is not God. And that's the best word we came up with to use was, was matter. That, that which <clears throat> exists apart from God, that which is it, it's inanimate, it can't think. There's what could have been the ultimate cause of all things if you try to remove God out of the out of the picture, about all you end up with is is matter. Now, what is the what is the viewpoint of evolution? <clears throat> it was called the theory of evolution until a bunch of our higher ed universities decide that it had been proven scientifically. And so now, if you as a professor dare to challenge this thing, you will get fired from our from from most. Uh, state institutions they will you will be gone if you don't accept evolution as scientific fact you'll be gone but what is involved in evolution because oftentimes they don't talk about the the critical parts of it some of them actually do and then try to justify it first of all the belief is it's called <clears throat> geographical uniformitarianism now, that, that won't fit in your crossword puzzles at all. <laughs> Big, long word that says all change is at the same rate as is observed today. Now, they tried this multiple times. They tried measuring Niagara Falls, and they measured the rate of recession back into the mountain as it ate off and eroded, um, the river ate off and eroded part of the, the land mass that was there. And they, uh, they first measured it at like three feet per year or something. So then they started doing some calculations and, and said that Niagara Falls was a million years old or something. That's, that was one of their first things. Then they found out that that was a wet season. And so they measured it during a dry season, a much drier year, and it only went back like a year or a foot. So how much was that? That changed their estimate dramatically, didn't it? Because they're looking at things today and trying to measure backward based on what they observe today. That's really bad science. Because even in science, the scientists that study things know there are catastrophes. And that does not account for catastrophes. Now, a man named Velikovsky, he put together a, a thing we studied back in the... 70s and he ended up with he did a brilliant book on earth and upheaval and it was about the global evidence the evidence of a global flood it was absolutely uh, wonderful the way he put the thing together and he got to the last chapter and he said of course this is the way evolution really works because catastrophes cause evolution it's not a slow gradual change it is for a long period of time, but then a catastrophe hits and it's a quantum leap in the evolutionary cycle. And he called it catastrophic evolution. That's, and so needless to say, that got met with a lot of opposition from the evolutionists. And uh, from us who believe the Bible to be fact, we really appreciated the documentation of the global flood because he, he did an excellent job at doing it. All change is, is observed at the same rate as it is today. So we look at something, we measure it, and then we start going back in time. And that does not account for catastrophes. Only the fittest survive. The second tenet of uh, evolution. You've heard it as survival of the fittest. And they will argue with you. Some of the most fit animals in all of history went extinct. But then they'll say, well, they weren't fit if they went extinct. So only the fittest have survived. So it's a, a dog chasing its tail. It's a circular reasoning that they go with. 
But that's one of the tenets. Then they believe the environment determines all evolutionary changes. When you start applying this to, to uh, human growth and psychological behavior, they apply that in the universities. So um, uh, while my daughter was studying psychology, they came out with a new DSM-4, which is the psychology Bible, and she said, Dad, said, I'm not sure this is going to work. And I said, what? And she said, she said the DSM-4, the new one, which is 10 years ago or so, came out and basically said that we are an animal. That we, that man and animals are the same thing and that they're, they're going to teach people how to deal with the psychology of animals. And said, because they're no different than us. And she said, I don't know if I can finish this out or not. Well, I, my advice was go ahead and finish it. You're that close to a doctorate. Go ahead and finish the thing out. And, uh, and uh, then you can refute them. <laughs> you get the, get the initials behind your name, and then you start writing papers showing how goofy they are. And, uh, but they never would approve. She was at a university here in Oklahoma. They never would approve her doctoral thesis uh, title. She had two of her titles submitted. They were given to other students, but they wouldn't give them to her. So she was a Christian. They couldn't break her. So the environment determines all evolutionary changes. Why do people want to change the society so much without changing the hearts of people? The only way you're going to change the society is change the inside from the inside out. The environment determines all evolutionary changes is one of their one of their arguments. Here's another one. Breeding with close family members is the best way to produce superior offspring. Darwin tried this himself. He had about a dozen uh, children. He married his first cousin, and, and the results were not good at, at all. Um, people who raise horses and cows, they raise animals, know better than that. I mean, how could he even come up with that? But this is Darwinian evolution, and so uh, breeding with close family members is the best way to produce superior offspring. Unborn mammals all have similar characteristics. Well, that's because of all those little creatures. See, that's, that's, that's true. Nobody argues with that. They have similar, they, the embryo starts and develops and things happen on a very consistent basis. But what they say is that it was caused by evolution. Uh, a Christian can look at that and say, no, it was, it was a designer. It was the same designer. So you end up interpreting things based on worldviews. Who is the designer? Then they're missing fossils. I love this one. That will fit in the missing developmental stages of the theory. Notice there, there are missing fossils that will fill in the missing developmental stages of the theory. Um, where are they? I had a, a conversation with a young man who just got out of college and he told me about all these missing links. And I said, where are they? The reason I knew that they were still missing is because I'd read books outside of the university uh, atmosphere. I said, where are they? Oh, they've got them. I said, fine. Can you send me a computer link so I can go look at them? Because all they've got, if you go on the Smithsonian, they've got this little ooze coming out of the primeval soup, and he comes out and he... And he starts standing up like they have. Guess what? Those are pictures that they put in there. They don't have the bones to go with those things. A lot of those so-called missing links that they have is made out of. They made one that got real famous in the eighteen hundreds, and all they had was a jawbone. And they took the jawbone and they built a whole man about uh, around it. And then they found out after they made a lot of money off of it, it was a pig bone. It wasn't even a human being bone. The bones that they have found, that they tried to make the missing links, they found out they're not human. They don't even have any ape DNA in them. They're just, they don't work. Uh, 
there are no missing fossils. And there must be a biological mechanism for one species to change to another. That they have yet to come up with. It's kind of like an old jalopy. Dr. Criswell taught a, did a class one time. He says, here you've got this, this old rusted out car sitting out in the middle of nowhere. And this old rusted out car over the course of time, <clears throat> it starts changing itself. And the motor starts working. And the, the paint is all... It, all by itself now. It's redone. Interior's all redone. And he says, this old rusted out jalopy turns into a Rolls Royce. And he said, you still don't have evolution. Now, if it turned into a 747, then you might have evolution. Because they're thinking that out of the primeval soup came one living creature. Now that one living creature came all these other things that they have no way to show how there's a there's no biological mechanism that they can say that this is how a a uh, horse jumped into a monkey suit. I mean, it's just not 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 there. So if you put these all together, it's what it looks like. At the very top, this roof is evolution. And you've got uniformitarianism. All things stay the same. In fact, 2 Peter chapter 3 talks about it. He says, they believe that everything has been the same since the beginning. It's, he's talking about the last days. I firmly believe he's talking about the rise of evolutionary thought. And he said, and it escapes their notice that things were created out of water and by water. I think they have missed the universal flood. So here is uniformitarianism, survival of the fittest, environmental determinism, natural selection, that's the inbreeding thing, the comparative embryology, where the mammals' embryos all look the same in early developmental stages, and then the missing links. And they tie that all together, you have to have a biological mechanism to get from one species to another. And you know what? They don't have any of them. None of these are true. None of them. But for evolution to be true, all of them would have to be true. None of them are true. Now, <clears throat> that is evolutionary theory <clears throat> in 15 minutes of your time. But that's what it, that's what it uh, boils down to. And it's so sad that a lot of our kids have been sold a bill of goods and taught this by people with initials after their name. And, and they're selling it as though it is fact. And this is the underlying part of evolution that they don't really talk about or they justify with false information. So that is God versus matter. Which one makes the more sense? The most sense. That a designer, intelligent designer, brought into existence all things and made the design? Or that out of chaos we end up with nothing? It's kind of like Nothing produces everything. Oops, there it is. Okay, it just happened. The premises of evolution, non-life produces life. Without any cause behind it, life just happened. Randomness produces complex organization out of a primeval soup. Okay, it's kind of like you threw dynamite into a forest and expected an Encyclopedia Britannica. You could do that forevermore, and it's not going to happen. Randomness doesn't produce a complex organization. In fact, things run from random to more random without energy put into the system, another law of thermodynamics, the law of entropy. Chaos produces information. Oh, we've got information in DNA, we've got information presented. You start thinking about the rise of, of language. Uh, language is such a beautiful thing that human beings have. And who gave Adam the first vocabulary? Where did it come from? How did he name the animals? Why did he know how to go, wow, when he saw Eve? I mean, how did, how did, he, how did he do that? Chaos produces inf information? No. It's not the way it works. And how about unconsciousness? 
producing consciousness. Uh, get over that one and figure that out and uh, win a Nobel Prize. How about non-reason produces reason? That's what you have with evolutionary theory. And so it's really one of those things foolish to believe. I don't believe we should try and meld it with, with uh, what the Bible has to say. We need to pay attention to the Bible and then, then see if any of this would fit without doing damage to the Bible narrative, the Bible, what the Bible has revealed to us. See, again, God revealed himself perfectly through inspiration. Why? So we can find the author's will, and then we can trust him and have an assurance that comes along with it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day, for your love and mercy, for all your goodness and grace. We ask that, indeed, that you would uh, help us to remember some of this. I know there was kind of like trying to drink out of a fire hydrant tonight, Father, but I pray that it would send us back to the books and looking at them, learning that we, as we can, and just coming to see with more clarity of thought and soul that you alone are the creator of all things and you are worthy of our worship. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.